You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, excited to jump into a new series, and uh, we're jumping into this series, Cancelled. And we're just going to look at, you know, cancel culture and the even the COVID-19 um, pandemic that we've been in uh, and, and look at the relationship between uh, those things, Christ and the church. And I'm excited about it. It's been something that I've felt like the Lord kind of led me into saying that before we jump into another epistle and as we close out this uh, summer, it would be good for us to just take a moment to do a little bit of cultural commentary. Not that we're just going to talk about what's happening in the culture, but if we could take some of the most prominent themes in the scriptures, primarily the gospels, even at that, looking at the life of Christ and apply those things to our day, that it would be helpful for us as we get into the fall, right? We're thinking about uh, new laws, new lawyers, and new legislation, new president, new, uh, all those things that shape a culture and a society. And I think it'd be good for us uh, as a church, as Christians in the world, as citizens to be thinking biblically through these things. And so that's what we'll come to today uh, as we start out. We're going to start out in our series today and then hopefully just build on it throughout the month of August. So I'm excited about it. I hope that you can be excited about it too. Probably a lot more teaching uh, than it is just the the preaching that we've been uh, looking at as we've even considered the Psalms. But uh, my hope is that it's beneficial to us and helpful. So here's a little bit of homework just as we get started. Uh, First and foremost, I've already used a term that you may or may not be familiar with. I know that you've experienced it, observed it, and that uh, you you may even have participated in some way with engaging in it uh, or or hopefully not, but participated in being a part of cancel culture. And cancel culture needs to be defined. So this is how we're defining cancel culture. It's the social media phenomenon and the trending uh, attitudes of our day that takes Uh, kind of a community outrage uh, and just that, you know, takes usually a public persona and uh, we'll we'll just run them through the ringer, right? So the the, the definition is the social media phenomenon that takes community outrage and transforms it into large-scale rejection of a person or a place uh, or a product, right? It's this idea uh, to dismiss something or someone. It is to reject or to invalidate uh, something or someone or to terminate a relationship, to terminate or try to terminate an individual, terminate support for uh, a place. And uh, it's, it's, that, it's, it's very transactional overall, right? It, it has nothing to do with uh, being a, a second chance type attitude. In fact, it just literally means that there is no redemption. There is no second chance. Uh, you know, you, you, you messed up. And so, uh, we're going to cancel you. We're done with you. Uh, you're dead to me. It's, it's, it's the attitudes that really today are trending sadly, uh, throughout 
the nation and throughout the even the world as we think about most of it is lived out in the world wide web and it's not only subject to the united states but it permeates our culture and our society and uh you know my hope is that by thinking through uh, what cancel culture looks like looking at even some of those expressions in the scriptures and seeing how jesus answers it that it'll give us uh, the, the kind of reminders that we meet, we need the gospel reminders that will keep us from being infected by culture in uh, such a way that it undermines our witness. Uh, I was talking to the elders just by email and I wrote to them just in recent years, the mob mentality of uh, public humiliation has all but removed grace from our culture. That's another reason why we want to even talk about this. The reason why we want to attack this with the gospel is because the modern world that we live in has polarizing perspectives. And then if you think about the pandemic and the fact that it has, it, you know, the, the, the pandemic has given us, uh, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different things to think or to believe facts and things that we would say, oh, is that true? Is that not true? How real is it? Oh, that was overinflated. That was underemphasized. This is being undermined and that's, you were overreacting. I mean, just literally people are diametrically opposed to each other. And I think that what has happened is, uh, even faster than the spread of the virus, there has been a spread of fear. That has been a, a spread of shame. There's been a spread of division, um, and and those things are kind of flourishing in our culture. And if they're unchecked, and we don't address those things and even acknowledge them as a temptation for us, they seep into the church and they infect Christian community. And my desire: we got three, four months until we have the election of a new president. Uh, maybe not a new president, but a new term. Uh, we have new laws. We have all kinds of things. I mean, Carlos and I were in town today. We saw that the that Junipero Serra's uh, statue has been removed from uh, the city hall right down there on California Street. And whether you agree with that or you don't agree with that, I mean, we just live in an increasingly cynical society and it's very divided. And, and the Christian witness has to be one that is clear and that um, is, uh, is winsome, that is direct, and that when we speak with conviction or towards something that, uh, that, that is uh, maybe against the cultural trend or, or the popular perspective, it needs to be about the right things. And we don't need to be swept up into areas where we lose our prophetic witness because we are participating in things that are divisive. All right. So um, I, 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 my concern is for Christian community altogether, for the church at large and especially for our church, for our church. Right. Uh, I, I read a, a, a young woman named Ashley Gorman. She works for Lifeway and she also works for the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council that's kind of funded by the Southern Baptist Convention. And she was writing about how to engage culture in, in the times of um or actually how to engage outrage uh, culture. And uh, speaking about society, she said this, she said, it's like we are all Gaston. If you've ever seen Beauty and the Beast, you know what that is or who that is. She says, we're all like Gaston. We're wild eyed and we're seething with a pitchfork in one hand and lighted torch in the other, awaiting the signal just to go and to kill the beast. Right. And then she goes on and she says, as the surrounding society rages on to kill the beast on the other side, whatever side that may be, 
We are the people who should be standing in the fray, telling the good news of the God who can slay the thing that makes the outrage culture so horrible in the first place. The beast that is within each of us, not who is against us and not it's not us versus them. Right. And so she's just calling for us to even consider that the gospel reminds us that we have a relationship to the outcast or to those who would otherwise be uh, pushed aside. So anyway, again, here we go. We got a short series we're jumping into for the month of um, August. And we just want to answer our cultural moment with the only hope of the world, which is redemption in Jesus Christ. All right. Redemption is good news. It's good news about grace. It's good news about love. It's good news about mercy. It's good news about forgiveness. And in today's world, in today's society, especially fueled by social media, it seems that our sins can never be forgotten and our past could never be forgotten. And that's how people act and respond towards each other. But the church is different, right? Jesus shows us how we can be free from our past through the gospel and how we ought to engage with those who disagree with that and with us. So that's a bit of an intro for the whole series, an elongated intro, not necessarily to the sermon for today, but just where we're going and what we're doing. So I wanted you to know that. Uh, and today I want to zero in on Christ's ministry and I want to learn one of, from one of his most important dialogues, uh, I think, on the pages of Scripture. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, let's actually read Luke chapter four, uh, chapter 4, verses 14. Uh, we may not make it all the way down to 30. I'll just read some of it here and then uh, you'll know where we are and, and you can read maybe even uh, as a follow-up to the message. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And I'll stop at verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Here we have uh, the mission manifesto inaugural speech, if you would from Jesus himself in his own hometown. Luke chapter four, verses 16 to 30 is Christ's manifesto. Like I just said, I like to sometimes call it his inaugural speech. This is the first time that Jesus 
uh, reveals to the people in his own hometown who he is as he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And I think the sermon today for us, the way it applies to the conversation we are going to be having about cancel culture and uh, our, our cultural moment is, an, is, is, is hopefully an attempt to encourage us to have a spiritual mind and to be kingdom minded in all of our approaches to life, which first and foremost should mean that we are compassionate individuals and that we think about kingdom values like mercy, love, forgiveness, and redemption as opposed to transaction and cutting people off. Jesus had been preaching in other places throughout Galilee. We saw that in verse number 14. And it says that this is his first sermon, though, at home. As he came back home to Nazareth, he's going to his home church, as it were. He's going to the place in which he was brought up is the way in which it's read to us in our text. And so he connects the dots for the first time of who he is. And he kind of delivers a mission statement to let everybody know this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And this is what those who follow me and are about God's business will be about. So we learn uh, or, and we hear from him, right? His words that, uh, you know, what he's about, what he does. And then we go and we even hear what the response is, right? There, there's, there's this idea that we, we see what Jesus says. And then uh, we didn't fully read it just now, but as we go through and review it, you'll see that uh, we actually hear how the people respond to him. And I want us to begin by looking a little bit into the background so that we can understand why this is important and then march through it. Okay. So verse 14, here we go. He's coming back into Nazareth and he's in the synagogue uh, in Nazareth. That's the context of what we just saw. But verse 14 and 15 summarize that Jesus had a ministry that had actually been going on in Galilee and in Capernaum. And so there's this backdrop. Yes, he came home. Yes, he read the scriptures in his own hometown. But before that, he had been doing all kinds of ministry in Galilee and in Capernaum. And Luke doesn't really give us a lot about that. It just tells us that he had been doing that. A report had went out throughout all the surrounding country is what it says. And he taught in their synagogues and he was glorified by all. If you look at a harmony of the gospels, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you kind of look at the chronological order of things, you don't get a whole lot, but you do find in the book of John a, 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 a lot said about him in that first period. And you find that it's about at least a year, right? So uh, about at least a year, the thing Things that have been happening that Jesus was doing is is uh, is summarized here in just one to two verses. It's just telling us this is what's, what's going on. But we're talking about a year worth of ministry. And here's why that's important. What we see is a record of the ministry of Jesus Christ outside of his hometown and in the surrounding areas. The word has been spreading about the things that he's doing, but he's not doing it at home. And in John's gospel, it would be read like this. John chapter one, beginning in verse 19, tells us that he was got, he got baptized by John and that the spirit descended on him and he was identified as the son of God. That happened outside of his hometown. Just a little bit later, in toward the end of uh, John chapter one, 
he starts to point to, uh, John starts to point other people to Jesus and say, I'm, I got to decrease. Uh, he's going to increase. So he's pointing his own disciples, John is, to Jesus Christ. He's identifying. He's the one to follow. Then you go to John chapter 2. You have the wedding at Cana. What does he do? He turns water into wine, a crazy miracle that nobody had ever seen, right? Then he goes and he cleanses the temple when he sees that the, the money changers are there and they're trying to keep people out that are outside of uh, ethnic Israel. He's trying. He he's, he goes and he he braids up a whip and he, uh, you know, drives people out of the temple. In John chapter three, we know Nick at night. Nicodemus comes to him and he comes and he says, uh, you know, how does a person get saved? And he gets his answers and whatnot. We get John three sixteen out of that moment. Again, this is all within just that that short period of what we saw in Luke chapter four, the first couple verses. Going beyond that, he goes on the outskirts of the rural areas to Judea. And him and his disciples are baptizing people. Everyone is coming out to him, it says, and he's baptizing many, many people. He preaches the gospel in Samaria uh, in John chapter 4, not just in Samaria, but to a Samaritan woman, very notably, right? She was an immoral woman out of the well. We're going to talk about her in a week or two. And then as we go from there, we see that he returned to Galilee and he did something that was amazing. He healed someone from 20 miles away. The reason why he had done that is because this person traveled to him to come and find him back where he was. That person was a Roman government official whose son was sick and dying. And Jesus healed him without even going to him. These are the kinds of things that are happening in the life and ministry of Christ. And all of this took place between what Luke would have given us basically in Luke 4, or thir- Luke 4 and 13 down to 14, uh, but what John gave us in about four chapters, all right? Here's the point. As Jesus began his ministry, he began his ministry outside of his own hometown, and he is becoming very popular. The news of him is going out before him. And the best way I can say it is that Jesus was first century trending, (laughs) right? He is a trending topic. Everything that he does, everyone wants to know about. And the news is coming and the reports have now come and he is considered the hometown hero. He's the person who like, I mean, everybody's excited about hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And so when the people of Nazareth have heard what he did, he comes home and there's this excitement. There's this level of anticipation. And then he goes to the synagogue. And that's what we just read from. Now, Jesus' arrival at Nazareth, as it is recorded in these uh, texts, is really his first public appearance is what we already said. So just imagine what it must have been like to be that person who is there. You've heard everything about him. And then now today he comes and he stands up in the synagogue. He takes the scroll and he begins to read and not just to read, but then to uh, come and to, to be the person who grew up here as a boy, went out, started a ministry, became kind of a rabbi. Nobody understands what's going on. He's doing these miraculous things and now he comes back and he reads from the scroll and he says that these things are fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, that was a, a critical moment, a crucial moment. And it, it was pivotal. It was a big deal for every single person who would have been there. And here's what he said. Verse number 16, 
Or verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls it up and he gives it back to the attendant. At first, it's not really that big of a deal. In fact, in the Jewish tradition at the synagogue, there would always be people who would read. And one person, there'd be two people. One person would read from the law. Another person would read from the prophets. And so the scroll that was given to him was from the prophets. And he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he just went and he read what was there. But when he sat down and rolled it up, he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's what makes it peculiar. That's where things start to change. Luke says that all the people there, even upon hearing him say that, spoke well of him, verse 22, and all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Is he not the Joseph's, the carpenter's son? Like, did you hear what he just said? That scroll that we've known that talks about the Messiah, the anointed one who would be the savior of Israel. He just said that that's him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's Joseph's son. They marveled at that. There's another time when they said, you're just Joseph's son. It was the Pharisees speaking to him and they were trying to undermine him. But at this point, what they were saying is, this is the hometown homeboy. This is, this is right. This is the guy who's like, he's from here. He's one of us. There's two things I want us to see about this response. First, number one, the people were positive about his claims because they saw that it was going to give them a place of prominence. It was going to uh, bring them to a place that would uh, give them a lot of uh, good and favorable attention. There's no resistance. At that point, in verse number 22, everything is all good. The second thing is that the reason why is because they selfishly were thinking about their own place and their own land. They looked at the fact that Jesus was, again, the hometown hero. You're the son of Joseph. And so therefore, we're expecting you. You've done all that stuff in Galilee. You've done all that stuff in Capernaum. You've done all those things out there. We're expecting you to really, really, really put on display for here. And at the same time, we know that you're going to bring back deliverance and you're going to bring back this this place of uh, kind of restoring the kingdom here in our town and we're going to be able to revolt etc cetera, etc cetera, right it's just coming from background and understanding that and so they expected great things and Jesus knew that and you know what for whatever reason because Jesus knew that he didn't just leave it there if it would have stopped in verse number 22 and he hadn't opened his mouth everything would be all good he could have kept his popularity he could have kept trending. He could have kept being a person that just everybody in the culture was uh, speaking very favorably about and, and very impressed with. He could have continued to ride the wave of success that he had. And the truth is, is that that would have carried him to a place where everyone would have exalted him and wanted to worship the ground that he walks on. But Jesus knows the heart of man. And so he didn't leave it there. He read his manifesto. He said that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to proclaim, 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 to preach, to preach, to preach to the outskirts, to the people who have been marginalized. The kingdom is in the margins and God has sent me to go 
there and he sent me just like he sent the rest of the prophets. And so instead of remaining quiet, he opens up his mouth. And I think this is a good check for us even before we go anywhere else. Uh, there, there are times when the message that you preach, the, the, the message that you speak to people of and the things that you talk about in relationship to the gospel and the kingdom can be, sound really, really good. Love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. But there are times when we have to know that what God actually wants us to do is open our mouths and to speak the truth in a, to the degree that we will even talk about and, and, and get past just the niceties, right? And we'll get to the points of judgment and calling people to repentance and calling out sin and saying that God wants to transform your life. He wants to change your life, including your desires and activities. So anyway, the, the, the idea is Jesus doesn't just stay in the place where everybody is like, uh, be, it's, it's, for him, it's not about a pop a culture contest. It's not a popularity contest. For him, it's what is the truth? And so he doesn't leave it there. What he does is he opens his mouth and he begins to speak. And he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. <laughs> what we have heard you did at Capernaum. Do it here in your hometown as well. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. Why did he do that? Because this principle that no prophet is honored in his own country or in his own town, right? Means that you and I and Jesus knew about himself means that you're not going to be received with open arms and you're not going to be propelled to the place of Oh man, this person and the message that they have is so like, it's so warming and it's so good for me. You're not going to be received like that if you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You're not going to have a big reputation in the community, most likely. But instead, you'll be met with rejection because what you're calling people to is to be transformed, right? Romans 12 and 1, even the, the call to the Christian is not to be conformed to the world, not to be conformed to society, not, be, not to be conformed to the things that are trending, but more so to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I love when people say I'm brainwashed. I'm like, you absolutely right. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to think God's thoughts about things. And that means that when you think those thoughts, you bear it up in your heart and out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And when you speak the things of God, you're not always going to be the person who would be considered to be, you know, popular. So Jesus wouldn't receive their misguided praise, right? And, and he set out to uh, correct their misconceptions right off the jump. I mean, you got, they spoke well of him. And so he said, <laughs> They spoke well of him. They were all praising him. He said, ah, hold on, y'all. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And all of a sudden, when you read the verses that we haven't read yet, what you find is that the people became all of a sudden this hell-bent mob that was just, they would have his head and they wanted to have it at that time. And at the end of the day, they were canceling Jesus on the first day of his ministry. They sought out to cancel him right then and there on the first day of his public ministry at home. The first day that he had told everyone who he was, he made the decision that he was not going to go the way of trying to win friends and influence people. 
It wasn't a new revelation to them. It wasn't any new information. The things that he had said to them, even the reading of the scroll in Isaiah chapter 61, was in the context. It was in a context. They knew the scroll. They knew Isaiah 61. They knew that I was talking about the Messiah. That's why it was really exciting when he first said it. But let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 60, right? He's quoting from Isaiah 61. Let's look a chapter ahead and let's not forget. This is the chapter after which our church was named. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We skip down to verse 3. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together. They come to you, your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart will, be, uh, will, will thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and of Epa, and all those from Sheba shall come, right? He's talking to these nations outside, and they will bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and uh, the praises of the Lord. Put simply, they knew and they should have recognized that he read from the context to say that the mission of the Messiah was to bring salvation and blessing to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone uh, who on the face of the earth believes in the Messiah and worships him is going to come to this place. And that's what it's all about. And so when he read that, they were, they were fine with it because they saw themselves, you know, dead central to it. But then he said, but wait a minute, let's make sure you understand the context. Jesus pointed out that if his ministry were correctly to be understood, then it wasn't going to be something that gave him uh, a place of prominence. No, he was going to be rejected just like the rest of the prophets of Israel. The rest of the prophets had come and they had preached the same message and time after time they had been killed. Read the prophet, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, right? Go and just read how they cast these folks out and they, they killed them without exception. They spurned them, they persecuted them, and they were not listened to. And so Jesus points to this principle and he says, you are going to tell me just like anybody else that, hey, if you're a doctor, you should be able to heal, you know, the people here. If you're going to bring prosperity like that, I know you're going to bring big, big blessings here, but I'm telling you, you know what the truth of the matter is, is that a prophet's not, not uh, the only place he's rejected is in his own town. And so from verses 23 to 27, let me see if I can summarize it for you. He uses two stories. I'll read them. Truly I say to you, or, or verse number 25, but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27 says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. He goes and he describes these things and he uses prophet Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 17, right? There's a famine in the land. Elijah was being hunted down by his enemies. And God came to his aid through a widow who was in the land of Sidon. And in the second story, you got prophet Elisha from 2 Kings chapter 5. So you can look at 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 5, and you see Naaman, who is an enemy of Israel, enemy of the people of God, is actually this Syrian military officer. And he has leprosy and Elisha heals him by telling him, hey, go bathe in the river 
these many times, several times in the Jordan River. In both of these cases, the prophet of Israel brought blessings to the Gentiles and not to Israel and not to Jews. In both of those cases, right, he, he brought it to the Gentiles, not to his own people. His own people did not receive the grace, did not receive the good. It went out in both places, uh, to, in, in, at both times to a, a, another place. And Jesus says, hey, it was a lot of widows and it was a lot of people with, uh, with leprosy right here in the hometown. But God seemed to be working and being favorable toward people who were on the outskirts, right? The prophets were sent to Israel to call out their sin and to call them to repentance, to offer them the same uh, objects of grace. And they were largely rejected by their people and they did not listen to it. And so in the context, when Jesus is returning home here in Luke chapter four to his hometown, he's re he's refusing to fulfill their expectations of, of propping them up and giving to them the place of prominence over above other people. He's refusing to be partial his expectations of them or their expectations of him are, are invalid because they're based on a false grasp of who God is. They didn't see him as a global God and a good God and the savior of the world. They saw him as a person uh, or, or a God who was only going to be about them. And so now we see why Christ found it necessary to take 20, verse 22 and turn it on his head in verse 23, right? Now we see that what it was is he was exposing their sin and he was he was calling out their true nature and, and calling them uh, to their true need of salvation. And he's saying, I'm the sin bearer of the world. I'm the one who is the liberator and who brings freedom to everybody, not just a few people. And that's why this is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's the message that turns us over to verse number 28. When they heard these things all in the synagogue, not a few, it says all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were filled with wrath. The response to him, you're telling me that God goes and he is, is uh, uh, faithful to outsiders, to the heathen? The people who are our enemies, you're telling me that God is a forgiving God? You're telling me that God is a merciful and a compassionate God to people that we want to smash on? Sidon and Syria, right? If you look at the Old Testament, Sidon and Syria are consistently named as, as oppressors and even like the foreign occupiers of Israel. And at that time, they're under a Greco-Roman government. And, and so they're being oppressed by others. And all they want to see is that there would be uh, this, uh, this permission, if you would, to retaliate and to, to fight against. And so you can't come telling me that God is doing this among the Gentiles and among the heathens, among the enemies of ours. Those people are cursed by God. Those people are not a part of God's family. Those, those are not people that God loves. We don't love them. They're, how in the world, right? This is their attitude. And so they thought that God would have revealed himself to them. And he would have done great and mighty wonders for them. And the thought that Gentiles would have had God to reveal himself, or worse yet, that God would be linking them both together and leveling the playing field and calling them both to repentance and faith and uh, salvation in the Messiah. But on a level plane, it was unthinkable. 
And so it sends them into a homicidal rage. It says they were filled with wrath. Anyone who would speak of the blessing of the Gentiles instead of the Jews was a traitor. And he, decided, he, he, he deserved to die today, right now, immediately. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the, bow of a hill, or the, the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, verse 29 tells us. Now, Jesus would escape. Verse 30 just says, passing through their midst, he went away. That right there is a crazy miracle. Even just the fact that he was driven out to something, he just walked right. I mean, the way that this is written, it just communicates to us that he didn't run from them. He didn't hide from them. It just says he passed right through their midst. That right there was, was a testimony against it. But at the end of the day, that's how the story ends. Why is that applicable to us and what can we draw from it? Here's some application. I believe that this incident in the life of Jesus has a whole bunch of implications for us and our own lives as we think about who the Messiah is, the head of the church, and who the church is that follows in his footsteps. Here's number one. God's prophets are not and never popular. Is that hard to pick up? That's not hard to pick up here. That's not hard to pick up if you look at the Old Testament. God's prophets are not people who win popularity contests. I feel like I've said that 10 times in this sermon. Maybe that's what God wants us to hear, that popularity is not what we're after, that we are not uh, trying to trend. We're not trying to win friends and influence people and get a whole bunch of likes and loves and so on and so forth. We are to open our mouths and say, thus says the Lord. This is what God's message is, even though it contradicts how you feel about a certain thing. Jesus said this clearly. Verse 24, when he says, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. That was no different than when Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7. And he said, which one of the prophets did your, 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 your uh, fathers not persecute? And you know what they did to him? They killed him right then and there. He was the first martyr of the church. They killed him right then and there. And he had the same message as Jesus. And all he was doing was telling the truth. And calling the people to repent. The implication of these things is that there has never been a prophet in the history of the world that the people who that prophet was even sent to would not spurn, right? He was never popular. He was never a person that won uh, uh, the, the affinity and the affection of the people. Jesus refused that here, right? He refused the popularity of his peers and of his hometown. And he knew good and well that popularity was not what he was going to build his ministry based on if he was faithful to God and the gospel. And he definitely knew that popularity wasn't going to take him to the cross, which is where everybody needs. If he's the savior of the world, he has got to go to the cross and die. And so part of his ministry is self-sacrificing, truth-telling, though in love, that cuts across culture at times and says, hey, it doesn't matter that everybody is going in this direction. Here's what God says. Here's what he calls us to and, 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 and. And so we, may, we need to remember this. As we carry out now as the body of Christ, the Messiah's ministry, we need to remember we're not trying to win a popularity contest. And this leads me to our next point. 
So far, you've been like, okay, yes, uh uh-huh. But the second point is, every single Christian has a prophetic ministry and a prophetic call. It's not just the pastors, and it's not just the people who you may have thought of as a prophet, right? Prophet doesn't always mean that I'm foretelling something that hasn't been said. It means that I'm a person whose mouth is used for God. I declare of his kingdom and his coming. And so here's the thing. All Christians have been given a prophetic task. So prophets are not popular. And every single Christian, including you and me, have responsibility to speak on behalf of the Lord. I believe it's true to say that every Christian has this prophetic uh, ministry and, and every call, uh, all of us have a calling, right, and a prophetic message because the church as the body of Christ is to continue to do and to teach and to model the same things that our Lord did and the same things that he taught in his earthly ministry. We think about the Great Commission, go into the world and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded. The Great Commission is in and of itself is a, is a prophetic ministry. You've got to go and to preach the gospel and to see people come to a point where they say that they are follow, they're going to follow Christ and they're going to observe what he uh, has commanded for the rest of their lives, right? Making disciples has to do with us going and actually declaring of the good news and then teaching people to follow the king. We're saying Jesus is king. And again, it's not just cool. It's like that means something. That means that we are worshipers. That means that we bow before him. That means that we go behind him. Early in Jesus's ministry, he said this. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the other prophets who were before you. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is that Christians are in the same line. Prophets, not popular, may and will even suffer. Just how hard Christian life and ministry and and, and the prophetic ministry can be is seen in some of our next principles. Number three is prophets are not popular because of who they identify with. So a prophet's not popular. You and I are prophets and we're not popular for these reasons. Because of who we identify with. Prophets got to identify with Christ, right? And we see what his uh, ministry is like. And so when you think about being in, in culture, even in today, you think about the, the way in which people think about Jesus and they think about um, uh, Christianity and they think about, quote unquote, our religion, if you would. They, they don't want to have anything to do with his teachings. They don't want to have to do with anything with him. And so they look for every opportunity to try and tear him and his church down. And our identify with, identifying with Christ as a savior, we're telling everyone else that he is the one who you must all bow the knee to. And so we are also going with him into places that he, uh, that, that most people don't want to go. So here, so here's, here's, here's where that gets a little bit hard for us. Jesus, we identify with him. And so we identify with who he identifies with. And he identifies with outcasts. He even said that here, and that's the way that God deals with society. 
those people who are rejected by everyone else, he identifies with, right? The Nazarenes, the people who are the Nazareth, uh, the, the hometown folks, wanted Jesus to identify with them, but they refused to identify themselves with those heathens and those people who would have been outcasts, those people that he names and says that God brought them salvation and forgiveness. Well, that means that that is exactly who we will be and where we will go. And so the, know this, the gospel forbids any Christian from ever giving uh, welcome and extending grace and forgiveness to a person based on their social status. The, that includes capital S sinners, whoever you're thinking about right now. Whoever you're thinking about right now, it includes them as well. There's no basis for you to say that I would not extend grace and forgiveness and the message of God's love and mercy to them because of whatever their status is. Christ's identification with fallen humanity that we know from, you know, like Philippians chapter two, that he came to the earth and he uh, he, he did the things that or, or he, he, he gave up his place in order to be. Um, you know, he emptied himself and became a servant for us, made in the likeness of man. That, 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 that calls us to something. The verses before it call us to something. It tells us not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but to be humble and account ourselves and other, I'm sorry, count others as more significant than ourselves. This requires the church to identify and associate with people who are otherwise lowly, the poor, the needy. And like I said, even sinners and those who are outcasts and so on and so forth. That's what that's what we're, we're called to do. Romans chapter 12. Paul wrote this very simply. Verse 16. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty. Be the kind of person who associates just like Jesus did with the with with the lowly. Right. Uh, Jesus associated with the sellouts and with the sinners. That's what a tax collector is. When it, when it says that he uh, hung out with tax collectors and sinners, it's saying you're hanging out with people who take money from Israel and give it to the Roman government. They're sellouts, and I can't believe that you would do that. And the thing is, is that there's got to be people in our in our day that you could even think about that, that God would uh, want to reach and, and that God loves them too. And God's grace is, is enough to cover the multitude of their sins. And however people might call them traitors or immoral or whatever it is, how is it that God is calling us to go and to extend grace to them? We've got to realize that if, and when we do that, especially even think about cancel culture, when somebody gets canceled, when somebody gets, uh, you know, just lambasted with like, uh, we, we don't support you. I mean, I was, I was talking to Carlos earlier about the, um, the local example. There's a coffee shop here in town and something happened online where somebody confused a person as being an employee of there. Some racist comment got, you know, uh, put out there. And then all of a sudden the whole, I mean, the, the whole mob just came and we're going to cancel you. We're going to cancel you, your coffee house. We're going to cancel you. And it's just like, it became a big old thing. And, and as far as I can tell, it isn't even true but it's just people's attitudes. So, so what is the, the right perspective? I think, you know, I mean, maybe we can, we can uh, buy coffee there, <laughs> right? While everybody else is saying, we're gonna boycott this place and not go there. It's just, the, 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 the thing is, is that if we are loving and compassionate and we're for people, we're gonna think about how to see things redeemed. We're not gonna think about how to cut people off. Kind of going into a tangent here, but Jesus did. Yeah, he associated with people who offended the self-righteous and the clean. It, 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 it offended the people who considered themselves to be clean. 
This reminded me, right, of a story one pastor told me who runs a food pantry down in Pico Rivera. He said every time there's an economic downturn, they would be feeding just as many uh, realtors who sell homes as they do those who are homeless because, you know, there's no commission coming in and things are not selling the way that they had been. And he said that time and time again, they get the calls, right, the demanding calls, and then the person comes buzzing in real fast, uh, wanting to cut to the front of the line. They come up in their luxury car, and they have to be told, hey, that's the line back there that has been formed since hours before we even open, and we can serve you, but you're going to have to stand in that line. And more than often, what ends up happening? Those people leave still hungry and still in need because of their pride and because of not wanting to associate with those who are unclean. Everybody, though friends. Everybody who would come to God for grace has to stand in line with sinners, with the unclean, with those who would be the lepers. We all got to stand in line with those who are poor and naked and needy because that's who we are. We're all in need of God's grace. Christians actually have a lot in common with those who are canceled. And so the first thing we need to think about is We are not going to be those who run away from, we run toward the margins, the ostracized. I got more points. Hmm. Here's our next point of application. I'll make it quick. One of the greatest hindrances to the church's prophetic ministry is the desire that we have, that we want to be popular and we want to have approval. So, Prophets not popular, right? You and I are prophets. We're not popular because of who we associate with. But you know what? It's going to be hard for us if we want to be approved by the world and we want to be able to fit in. And we're so afraid of the shaming that may come if we associate ourselves with those who are not given uh, hearty approval. And so then, therefore, we don't get the approval of the culture. I'm not going to go into too much about that, but I'll just say if we're more intent about win- uh, winning a person's approval than we are about God's, then we actually have to ask another question because we might be dulling God's message. We might be changing God's message and we might not be believing God's message. Right. We not we might actually be signed up for a Christianity that Jesus is not about. And Jesus is not the one who's le- uh, is not leading. And so we need to reexamine examine that and come back to that. I think we got time to do that. We'll do it at another time. Let me give you the last one. And this is the hard truth of the whole context of this place. And this is the one that I think is things a lie. It's things for me. It's things for all of us. Our patriotic duty should never conflict with our prophetic duty. We are prophets. We cannot be popular. And sometimes that means that we're in a place where everybody in a culture is, uh, you know, uh, praises certain things and certain people and goes in certain directions. And we cannot allow that to undercut the responsibility that we have as God's man, woman, boy, girl uh, in this nation. Right. Why do I say that? Well, in effect, the people of Nazareth actually appealed to what Jesus's sense of nationalism. They appealed to Jesus as you're the hometown hero. And this is where you definitely are going to do these things. And they all marveled at him and said, man, you're Joseph's son. This is amazing. Even the original term for the word hometown in your Bibles is very close to the term that from which we get patriot, 
That's what it, that's where it comes from. That's what, that's the idea there. Very similar, same tone, same meaning as Patriot. So here's the deal. Our ultimate allegiance is to who and to what? To Jesus and his kingdom, right? To the heavenly land, to the heavenly city. We're, we're strangers and we are pilgrims in this earth and in this land. Doesn't matter where we are on God's green earth. And when we become too attached to a culture or to a country or to a place, to our city, we may find that our obligation to God, our responsibility to God as his man or woman could be undercut and be undermined because what? We're allowing it to be overshadowed by our national affiliation and our national uh, place, right? We, 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 we're allowing uh, the, the flag of our country to be more important than the banner of Christianity, the bloodstained banner. You know, we're coming back from lunch and uh, Carlos and I are talking. He said the symbol cannot be greater than its meaning. It doesn't matter if it's a cross, a flag, a banner, whatever it is, right? What does that mean? It's just, uh, I think if I'm picking up what he's saying more than, more than anything else, it's just my commitment and my allegiance and my worship of a thing, doesn't, it, it doesn't land in uh, what it should be pointing me to. Right. And so here's here's the reality. We are those who are kingdom citizens. And even if we are in a place that some people would call God's country or even if we are in a what people would say started out as a Christian nation or doesn't matter is the nation who we bow down to and worship is the nation who we obey is the president, the governor or whoever else. Is that the person that our ultimate allegiance is to or is the ultimate allegiance that we have to King Jesus and to the kingdom? I mean, that's a, you don't even have to answer that, right? Just, I mean, I know what you're saying, but the, the reality is, is that sometimes those things get confused because we're not really thinking of ourselves as missionaries and exiles and strangers in a land. We're thinking of ourselves not as citizens of the kingdom, but we're thinking about ourselves as U.S. citizens and, you know, Democrat or Republican or uh, independent or whatever it is. And so we put ourselves into camps that now all of a sudden it becomes a us versus them. And we're more committed or we can be more committed to what God calls uh, or, or to what a nation calls us to than what God calls us to. You'll remember in Colossians chapter three. You remember Colossians 3, we talked about being a new humanity, being a new family, being, you know, having new responsibilities and whatnot. And here's the, here was the point that, that, that we could see that sadly, some Christians even would rather hold on to heritage and ethnic family background and national or cultural values than to be let, than to let go of them and to embrace the new family and the new humanity, right? A prophet even. That God sends, sends to a people, sends to a place, is born in a place or whatnot, right? Born, it doesn't matter. They bring the good news of God's kingdom, right? That can at times be bad news for a people in terms of like, that you got to turn from that. You can't keep doing that. You can't think like that. that you actually have to go backward, uh, you know, this way, take steps of repentance, which is what it means. Just make a 180 and go the other direction. At times we contradict the principles the, the, the kingdom values contradicts the, the principles and the goals and the values maybe of a nation. If you think back to Jonah, right? He didn't want to go to the people of Nineveh. Why not? Because they were heathen 
outsiders and the people of Israel didn't look at them in a good way. He didn't want to see mercy and salvation come to them. By the time you get to Jonah chapter four, it says this, verse one, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, speaking about the fact that God had compassion on the people and that there was great revival there. It says he was exceedingly angry and displeased. And this is what he prayed to the Lord. Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I ran from you is what he's saying. Because I knew that you are a gracious God and you're merciful and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love and you relent from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, it would be better for you to take my life. Please take my life from me for it's better that I die than to, to live. Why is he so upset? He's so upset because God was gracious and forgiving and brought salvation to people that he considered to be heathens and unredeemable people that he had canceled people that he thought there's no salvation for them he turns around and he says this ain't even right this is why I didn't want to go that's why I ran from you in the first place when we look at a person like Jonah and even look at others and we can see that these are you know th that's an example of a person who is a meritable patriot but is a miserable prophet that's an individual who's really committed to one thing, right? The nation, but not com committed to the kingdom. And so here's what, here's where I'm going with this. And let's conclude. We just compl completed our kaleidoscope series. And this is what uh, really inspired some of this, right? One of the things that we said is that God seems to delight in being a barrier breaking God. And I asked everyone to walk away and ask yourself this question. Am I ready to be? and even embracing the reality that God has called me to be a barrier breaking and a culture crossing and whatever else, right? Redemptive thinking uh, person behind him. Am I willing to be a barrier breaking person? Christians are not in the business of uh, making barriers and burning bridges. On the other side, right, we build bridges. We're the kind of people that do whatever we have to do to tear down a barrier between a person and God. We don't let anything stand in between uh, a person and God because we're a kingdom and a nation of priests, right? Our responsibility is to lead other people to Jesus. And so here's the deal. You guys hear me say all the time, the trouble for a person who is a, a bridge, right, or a bridge builder is that, you know, you get trampled on from both sides, but what makes it all worth it is the cross. My hope is that we will not see ourselves as a us versus them. My hope is that we would even see that uh, by doing that. See, it sounds like Jesus is like talking down so bad to these uh, people in the synagogue. It, it, you know, if, if the reason why I tried just really hard, I want to tell the whole story. I want to take my time. It's probably been going for, I don't know how long we've been talking today, but here's the deal. The reason why we did that is because I wanted to be clear. His message was just that the gospel is for everybody. That's what got him in trouble. It wasn't that he said, I hate you. He didn't say, you're doing something, uh, you know, I mean, he didn't, he didn't curse them. He didn't do anything wrong. He just said, hey, guys, God's always been about everybody. 
So, so, so we should not be the kinds of people who are not like, uh, or, or we should be the kinds of people who are always thinking about how to tear down barriers between people and how to build bridges. And so as we think about that, I, I want you to be honest with yourself, right? Even if you think about it right now, you might think about family members, think about conversations you've had or conversations you're going to continue, conversations you need to have. And you're realizing that, okay, God wants me to actually speak up about this as a prophet is not called to be silent. God wants me to actually say something in response to my, my parents, in response to my siblings or my neighbor or my coworker, whatever it is, right? You may want to actually, you, you may be getting fearful about that. You may even be, um, you know, just second guessing yourself in it all. But my, my prayer for us is that God would embolden us to just give a simple and a clear, redeeming and reconciling message to any and everyone so that we are the kinds of people who speak with an aura of grace and we'll see people from the outskirts and from the quote unquote in skirt. I don't know what that is, right? But we'll, we'll see some of everybody coming to the knowledge of the truth because we don't have barriers that stand in the way and we bridge, build bridges between people. We're peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? So my, my hope is that God will send us to people and he will fill our mouths even this week to, uh, with a message that he wants to communicate. But I want to pray for us because this is a privilege that we have and this is a responsibility at the same time and it just is going to take his spirit. He's got to be the one who's working in us. So why don't you pray with me? Father, as we follow you by faith, we recognize that there's sometimes those things that it's just, man, that's just a hard saying. Uh, maybe for this group, maybe just maybe, God, it's not actually difficult for us and that it's, it's something that we're rehearsing and you just seem to you keep bringing it before us. But at the end of the day, Lord, I know that there's uh, a person for each and every one of us. Call it a people or, or a character or, or a type or whatever it is. There's there's a, there's someone and there's even somewhere that we might consider to say, like, but not them unlovable, unredeemable. That would be my worst nightmare if God wanted me to go and to serve them, to, uh, to, to bring the good news to them and to, to make disciples in that context. But God, we know your spirit, you told us, is with us always to the end of the age. We know that you haven't left us to our own devices and we know that you even bring us to messages like this that continue to call us to repentance and open our eyes to things and, and gives us the power to say, you know, I naturally wouldn't do this. I'm not this kind of a person, but I know that this is what God has called me to. And so I'm going to go with him. Lord, would you do that? Would you continue to even, um, I mean, as, as hard as it is to even ask this, Lord, just continue to expose the areas in our hearts that are not like Jesus and to change us, Lord. Uh, continue to, to, to expose us, open us up, um, and help us to really, truly, and genuinely be those people who are gracious and compassionate. And um, just like Jesus would even go to the margins, um, not only to the margins, to the negation of, uh, you know, anyone else, but who would just not be, uh, who, or, or who would be without boundary, right? Who would be limitless. So Lord, we ask for your help and we ask for your grace. I pray for our, our community, Ventura, Lord, we love the people. 
We love the place. Um, as we go into an election cycle, God, there are things that are changing even right before our eyes. Like we said, we talked about the statue, and there are people who are really happy about that, and they feel as though that is the ultimate victory. There's other people who are uh, really sad by that, and they feel like it's the ultimate scorn. And those people are now on, they're diametrically opposed to each other, and it's just more fuel to the fire. God, may we bring the living water and, and put some of that out by the way in which we engage uh, graciously and compassionately. May we, even as we walk through this series, really be able to see, God, what cancel uh, and canceling people really does and how it um, condemns, but you have called us to redeem and to uh, to restore and join you in that ministry. So, Lord, we just uh, honor you and we commit this time to you and we're thankful in Christ's name. Amen.